feet. That row, that's about eight feet in between. Roughly. Six. So like that. It's like this, but like add on like another foot on each side. That, that thick, two and a half times this tall, two and a half miles long. Thousands of people, and you pull everybody together. Hey, everybody, come back from exile, and let's build a wall. And you get it done in 52 days. Miraculous, right? We must remember that Nehemiah said yes to God before fully knowing what he was getting himself into. True or false? True. He said yes to God before fully knowing what he was getting himself into. The surprising thing about Nehemiah is that there are no surprises. What you see with Nehemiah is what you get. Nehemiah doesn't go along and then all of a sudden do something stupid, get caught in sin and disqualify himself from his position. Nehemiah doesn't allow pride to sneak up on him, turn his heart towards the things of this world and then become a terrible leader. Nehemiah does what he says he's going to do and he doesn't let anything that comes in his way stop him and then he completes it. And because he went there not for selfish reasons... He stays on after his original task to ensure that the people not just survive, but thrive in this new culture and in this place. Okay? What I think is beautiful is that he doesn't get tired and quit. He sticks it out to the end. He finishes the job. Then he keeps going. Once he's done with the wall, he's like, what do you guys need? A governor? Sure, I'll do that. Oh, it comes with a big pay increase. Doesn't matter. I'll give it all away. I'm just trying to get these people back to health. I'm trying to get this city back to health. I've got a job to do. And Nehemiah just does the job. He doesn't take all these extra things that he could claim as his own as a result of the hard work that he's put in. But he instead focuses on the people and gives all the glory to God. These enormous journeys of faith are so much more practical than we think. Let me reverse what I just said a second ago about the wall that was rebuilt and how we all, even myself, came to the conclusion, hey, this must be miraculous. When they got there, the wall was only partially torn down. It wasn't all the way torn down. It wasn't in ruins and rubbles all over the place. It was in many places torn down and had to be repaired. All the stones that were needed to rebuild it were right there at hand. And the people that came together, thousands of people came together, many of them skilled labor that were dedicated to finishing the work and had the willpower and the desire to do it. Now all of a sudden it doesn't sound so miraculous. It sounds like people that were just willing to do work came together. And God, along the way, provided each step exactly what they needed. It takes this story, which is so easy to see as miraculous and therefore separate ourselves from and not hold ourselves to the same standard. But when we start looking at it through those eyes and saying, wait a second, they were people just like we were. They were encountering something that in the same way something might look insurmountable or impossible to us. As soon as they put one foot in front of the other, 
God began to provide. Nehemiah said yes before he knew what he was getting himself into. But once he got there and began to survey everything, the Lord began to show him what he needed to do. Once the enemies came out, the Lord showed Nehemiah what he needed to do. Nehemiah had a plan. The people came along with it. They came under his authority. Everybody moved forward together. And then the enemy couldn't stop it. Today, the title of the sermon is Finish the Work. Finish the Work. It's funny because the crux of this whole message comes in the very first few words of the passage that we'll be looking at today. So the wall was completed. It was finished. And yet it goes on to say some of the finishing work that was needed at the time of completion. So we're going to look at a few of these things. It won't take long for us to get through this today. Look at this next line in Nehemiah 6.16. Sometimes you got to read through things slow in the word to really soak in what it's saying. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Doesn't something about that sentence call out to like your gut? It does to mine. All the surrounding nations lost their self-confidence when they saw that the work was completed. Because they saw that it was done by God. The people coming together and doing these seemingly mundane or menial tasks or what seemed like just maybe chiseling away, what seemed like maybe just cutting, what seemed like maybe just assembling, moving, rolling, hammering, just a bunch of those tasks all put together ended up being what caused all the surrounding nations to lose their self-confidence, become very afraid, and give credit to God. But all it was was just a whole bunch of people together doing these tasks. In fact, most of them doing what God had called them to do or created them to do. Some of them stepping outside their comfort zones and just being willing. But each of these willing hearts all put together doing these tasks that were totally doable by men and women. All that put together over the course of 52 days caused all of the surrounding nations to lose their self-confidence, become afraid, and give glory to God. A lot of times we look at these stories that we read about in here. Oh, David, just a 13-year-old boy, somewhere around there, runs up to a 9-foot, 6-inch tall giant who is covered in armor with his own uh, sword bearer, shield bearer, armor bearer, and throws a stone at him. Boy, that's miraculous. But you remember that he said, I'll do to him the same way that I did to the lion and the bear. What do you think was more scary for David? The first time that he faced one of those giant beasts? Or this? I would say the first time that he faced one of those beasts. Because he's looking at this going, yeah, I've been in a similar situation before. I can handle this. I got it. My God will come through for me. 
Because it's not that he learned to trust in his own strength. It's that he learned somehow I keep getting delivered through this. So I'm going to step out in faith. And I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to take care of it. Right? I've been in a similar situation, but I'm going to go ahead and step out. I'm going to trust that this is all going to work out. You've got to understand that this is probably a lot more the thoughts that were going through these people's heads. When I read them, these guys are my heroes. Right? I don't have quarterbacks or, or, or athletes as my heroes or CEOs or software engineers or developers. I don't have, those aren't my, these are my heroes. Okay? So, so as I'm reading through this, sometimes I can tend to like, wow, they're way up here and I'm way down here. These men are my, Daniel, wow, can you imagine being thrown into the lion's den? My goodness. But I look and I remember, these were people just like me. And the things that they did weren't done all at once. They took one step at a time. And the Lord gave them what they needed right then. And then right then. And then when they turned around, <laughs> something that we would look back at and say, that was a miracle. And, and all they did was take one step of faith at a time. That's all it was. And it's so important that today we understand that to finish the work, it's not going to be some all of the sudden, get out of the way, everybody. I'll fix this whole mess. But it's going to be everyone coming together. Each person doing what they can as they can, taking a little step of faith at a time. But then collectively what happens over a period of time, all the surrounding nations will at some point lose their self-confidence, become very afraid, and give glory to God that he's the one that did all of this. That's what's happening. But to us it looks like, well, it's just... A little hammering, a little sawing, a little cutting, a little picking up, a little moving, a little giving, a little praying, a little encouraging, a little discipling, a little studying, little tasks. But this is how these miracle things get done. Little steps of faith, cumulatively. You know why he does it that way? So that man doesn't get the glory. Because you know what we do with the glory? We ruin it. We ruin everything. But if we'll submit to his way, he'll carry us along as a nameless and faceless people. We tried it. Our first attempt at marketing was this past week with the mumps thing. We thought, how can we get every single news station <laughs> to put our name on the air? I know an outbreak of the mumps. Free marketing. I watched as these news people, I was watching their faces and they're like, at a rising church. And I'm like, man, we made it. We made it. <laughs> oh boy. Nameless and faceless. Check this out. I want to show you a picture. So we've gone through this so far. Look back in chapter 2, verse 10. 
So this is when Nehemiah was making his plans. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed. What does y'all say? Displeased. Disturbed. That someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. When you begin a work, the enemy gets disturbed. Look at chapter 4. In verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. What does y'all say? He became what? Enraged. Furious. Continue the work and the enemy gets angry. Look at this in chapter 6. What would y'all call it? I know uh, not many people in here are dating right now. But if someone, if someone was calling over and over and over again and you were like, no, I said no. The answer is no. Leave me alone. What would you say that person's being? Annoying. Annoying. <laughs> persistent. Oh, persistent. Let's put a positive spin on this guy. I mean, we don't know his whole story. Maybe he's a... Uh... <laughs> You got a good one, Christiane. How about desperate? Is that fair? Okay, I think we have consensus. We can move forward with the spirit-led sermon. When you begin the work, the enemy is disturbed. When you continue the work, the enemy gets angry. When you near completion, this is what you see. Four times they sent me in, in verse four, four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave him the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message in his hand was an unsealed letter. And then he says in verse eight, nothing like what you were saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head, which almost sounds like a teenager responding to another teenager. It's probably just the translation. Anyways, when you near completion of the work, the enemy gets Desperate. Desperate. Who else was desperate? I think you see desperation in Pharaoh as all the Israelites are leaving through the Red Sea and he sends his army in between these giant walls of waves, loses everything. I think you see desperation in Saul when he's trying to track down David and he goes to the witch of Endor to summon the soul of Samuel. I think you see desperation in a lot of people that are trying to stop the work of God. But you see desperation when you're nearing completion. But then look again at 616. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid because finish the work and the enemy is afraid. Begin the work and you disturb the enemy. Continue the work and the enemy gets angry. Near completion of it and he gets desperate. Finish the work and he becomes afraid. Why is it important to look at this pattern that's laid out for us in Nehemiah? Because at what point, if you're waiting until the enemy slows down or calms down his efforts to stop the work, 
He's not going to slow down until it's completed. And then it's done. (laughs) Once the work is finished, it's done. And the enemy knows this. And he's afraid. Up until this point, Sanballat, Tobiah, several other characters have tried to stop the work. They've been against the work. But once the wall was built, once that part was done, everybody got afraid because they knew, oh no, God is the one doing this and there's not going to be any way we can stop him. I want to tell you that that's my encouragement for us this morning. What God is doing among us and in this body is his work. This week, as I thought, I mean, let me, I'll be honest. As I'm watching this stuff, it was disheartening. As I was watching these things for me, and I was starting to get kind of ticked. And I felt that rising up in me. So I had to call Nick, my counselor, multiple times. And we talked through it. And he reminded me over and over, this is just the enemy. This is just the enemy. Because what I felt it was like is like we were kids on a playground and everybody was saying, they have the cooties. That's what I felt it was like. And it's kind of like, hey, that's mean. You don't know us. We don't have the cooties. What are the cooties? Is that real? (laughs) Sure, it's not just another string of the flu. I don't know. It doesn't matter. (laughs) The point is, is that this week I was comforted by the Lord as he reminded me that this is what he was doing. And that how many times in the past have something happened where I've gone, oh no, oh no, it's falling apart. How can we hold this together? And somehow, not as a result of our efforts, but as a result of the Lord's hand at work, the work continued on. So then why now should I abandon my hope in him and give in to the fear tactics of the enemy? Especially if he's getting desperate. Because he's showing his hand. We're nearing the end of a specific work that's going on in this body. And I know that. And I know that. And we can be encouraged because the Lord will be our strength. What happened this morning was the welling up of some desperation. (laughs) Because the enemy may be desperate to stop the work. But his desperation prompts a desperation in the hearts of people to reach out to him. And that's what we were doing this morning. It prompts a desperation. And if we should ever get to a place where our hearts are callous towards the Holy Spirit, then, Lord, you have the freedom to do whatever you want in this church to bring us back to a place of hunger and thirst for righteousness and for the things of God. Do we all agree in that? We're in it for the long haul.
Nehemiah 6.17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah. Love letters. And replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to many, uh, son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Doesn't this sound like junior high? So Tobiah, let me give you the skinny on this guy, Tobiah. Tobiah, <laughs> Tobiah was an Ammonite official or an Ammonite servant. And so he was likely some governor type position. But he had relationships that made him good with the people of Jerusalem. Okay. Those relationships that he had at the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, those relationships that he had endeared those people to him financially. And so he had some power as a result of the Persian Empire because he was in a seat of prominence and authority over Ammon. And he had worked in some connections with Nehemiah's people. Now, Nehemiah didn't care for any of this. So Tobiah is trying to stop the work to maintain his power. Have we seen that before? The enemy trying to stop the work of God to maintain his power. We've talked about that in this place before, right? That's a tactic of the enemy. And he uses people to do it. People wanting to maintain their position of prominence will fight the things of God, even if they claim to be for God themselves. They will fight the things of God to stop it from affecting their power or threatening their position or comfort. Does what I just said make sense? People who sit in a place of comfort or luxury or prominence or power, even if they claim that they are for God, when they try and stop or suppress the actual work of God, they are revealing that they are not for God, but they are actually on the enemy's payroll or at least working for his agenda and not God's agenda. So the people that were supporting Tobiah, sending him letters, right? And then telling Nehemiah all these wonderful things about Tobiah and then going back to Tobiah and reporting everything that Nehemiah said. Those people were working for the enemy's agenda, not for God's agenda. And Nehemiah saw this and there was a distinction that was made between them. We even see later on, and I won't get too much into this because it's a later passage. But even after Nehemiah comes in, gets rid of Tobiah for a while, when Nehemiah goes back to take care of some business, guess who comes back around? Oh, hey guys, where's Nehemiah? Is he around anywhere? He's gone? Oh, sweet, sweet. Those contracts that we had, are those still good? You got any room in the temple for me? I'd like to stay there for a while. Actually shacks up in the temple for a while. Inside the temple. Nehemiah comes back and kicks him out though. Tobiah, not a good dude. But what's happening is, Nehemiah, after completing the work on the wall, 
and all the nations losing their self-confidence is having to deal with some of the more tangled messes. One of them was Tobiah. The relationships that are affected inside the city are having to be dealt with as well at the same time. What you see is that this completion of the wall, Nehemiah begins to work on the heart and the souls of the people. That's what's happening here. One of the first places to start is these negative, terrible, ungodly relationships and connections. Here it even says that they were under oath to Tobiah. There were covenants that were made with the enemy. And those had to be broken. And the enemy had to be removed from among their midst. There couldn't be any trace of it. In verse 1, chapter 7. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. This morning the Lord was speaking to me actually on this. Gatekeeper, something I never really paid attention to. How many of y'all ever looked into gatekeepers and what they are in the Bible? There's something really powerful and special about the gatekeeper. It actually comes from the word for threshold. So the gatekeeper would stand. I would picture if I were standing as a gatekeeper, and let's say that those doors back there were the gates, I would think I'd, be, I'd want to be standing on the inside of the gates for protection. And then like there'd be bars and I could kind of look out and be like, yeah, what do you want? So I'm like, protect, you know how they do in like those gangster movies where they have like the drop down thing and they're like, yeah, who, who, what's the password? You know what I mean? Like that. <laughs> I'd want some sort of protection, but the gatekeeper would stand on the outside and would watch and they would work together with the watchman and they would communicate about the threats. Now, if something was coming and it was clear that someone was coming to invade or an army was coming, then the gatekeeper could move inside. But on the regular, the gatekeeper would stand there and they would guard to make sure that nothing got in that wasn't supposed to be in. So threshold. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles 9. So you can see in chapter 9, uh, approximately verse 1, it says, The people of Judah were taken, a captive, taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. So remember when Chronicles was written, this is the last book to be written in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so it's recounting a time from before as we're reading this in verse 17. The gatekeepers, Shalom, Akub, Talman, Ahimon and their brothers, Shalom, their chief, being stationed at the king's gate on the east up to the present time. These were the gatekeepers belonging to the camp of the Levites. Shalom, son of Kor, the son of Ebiasaph, the son of Korah, 
Oh, check that out. Korah's sons get in there. And his fellow gatekeepers from his family, the Korahites, were responsible for guarding the thresholds of the tent. That is the temple. So the threshold was the area where you went from being outside to being inside. The threshold was what blocked it. From being outside to being inside. And the gatekeeper guarded the threshold. Okay? Just as their fathers had been responsible for guarding the entrance to the dwelling of the Lord. In earlier times, Phineas, son of Nick and Danielle, just kidding, son of Eleazar was in charge of the gatekeepers. In charge of the gatekeepers. You guys already knew that, right? Okay. And the Lord was with him. Zechariah, son of Meshillamiah, was the gatekeeper at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Altogether, those chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds numbered 212. They registered by genealogy in their villages. The gatekeepers had been assigned, listen to this, to their positions of trust by David and Samuel, the seer or the prophet. They and their descendants were in charge of guarding the gates of the house of the Lord, the house called the tent. Now, already, I know what you're thinking. These guys must be superheroes. They were guarding the entrance to the temple of the Lord. These guys were the mighty men appointed by David, the king, and Samuel, the prophet, to do miraculous things, to guard miraculous things, and be in charge of miraculous things, and lots of miracles. And this is what they would do. But listen to what they were responsible for. So it says, the gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south. Their brothers and their villages had to come from time to time and share their duties for seven-day periods. But the four principal gatekeepers, how many were there? Four. And they were at what corners? North, south, east, and west. Who were Levites, were entrusted with the responsibility for the rooms and treasuries in the house of God. Now, we won't go there today, but it's interesting to think about the four that hold back the winds of the earth in Revelation. Gatekeepers. Guarding the threshold. But just listen to this. The four principal gatekeepers who were Levites were entrusted with the responsibility for the rooms and treasuries in the house of God. They would spend the night stationed around the house of God because they had to guard it. Because they had charge of the key opening it each. Opening the doors that was their miraculous responsibility. What else did they do? Some of them were in charge of the articles used in the temple ser service. They counted them. They were just counting articles when they were brought in and they were taken out. Others were assigned to take care of the furnishings, the furniture and all the other articles of the sanctuary, as well as the flour and wine, the oil, incense, and spices. Some of the priests took care of mixing this. This sounds more like cooking. A Levite named Mattathiah, the firstborn son of Shalom the Korahite, was entrusted with the responsibility for baking the offering bread. Some of the Korahite brothers were in charge of preparing for every Sabbath the bread set out on the table. These, once again, were menial tasks. Counting the articles, mixing the spices, getting the bread ready, right? Moving the furniture around, guarding the door. But all of these things together were something extraordinary. 
because they together were painting a picture of what was going on in heaven. The work that Nehemiah was doing, the reason it was so important, is because he was bringing the picture of what was in heaven to earth and he was setting it all up. And so each person that was installed in their position was a shadow of what was going on in heaven. The Lord was giving him and had given him the plans through his word, but was showing him how to set up heaven on earth. And even though each person's individual task might not have felt like something extraordinary, it required steps of faith along the way. And when you put them all together, you were seeing a work of God, his plan, his ways, his people. The wall, we said from the beginning, this wasn't just about the wall. It was about the relationship. And the wall represented a distinction among the people from the people outside the wall. Did Nehemiah think that these walls were going to save them from any future threat or attack? No, because they had already fallen. They were rebuilding the very things that had fallen before. The wall was important for more reasons than just to prevent another attack. It was important for the morality of the people for them to see, hey, we're a people again. There's this wall and it's a distinction. We are to be distinct. We live in distinct ways. We came out of Babylon. We're not supposed to bring anything with us. We're now separate. We're distinct. We are a people wholly devoted to the Lord. We see those who were musicians, heads of Levite families, stayed in the rooms of the temple and were exempt from other duties because they were responsible for the work day and night. So in Nehemiah appointing the gatekeepers and the singers, can you bring up that one slide? What he was actually doing is helping restore holiness, giving the people a sense of protection, also establishing financial structure because they were counting and they were taking care of the giving. Order was being reestablished in the way that the temple activities would be done. And then pleasing worship. He brought the singers and the instruments back in. He restored worship. He was working on the souls of the people. The wall had been built. The temple had been built. The altar had been built. The gates had been set up. And now he was restoring order on the inside. And that was boosting the people to live again as the people of God. Let's go back to Nehemiah. And we'll finish up. I said to them, verse 3. The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some, of, some at their posts and some near their own houses. So this was one final act that we see in this passage by Nehemiah. He kept everybody on guard. They normally would open the gates so that a maximum amount of business could be done throughout the day. The gates would be opened early in the morning. They would stay open as late as they could without endangering the people. Nehemiah told them to wait until the sun was hot in the day. 
And then while they were still on duty, close and bar the doors. He shrunk the window that they would be engaging and interacting with the outside world. Because he knew that there were still a potential for surprise attacks and that the enemy still wanted to destroy the work of God that was going on. Once the wall was finished, he didn't throw down his arms, kick up his feet and say, we did it. It's done. It's over. He knew that once that work was done, it gave way to the next work, which gave way to the next work, which gave way to the next work. In fact, all the people that we read about in Hebrews 11 were doing that same thing. They were working for something that they did not receive in that moment. And then they passed on that work. And then they passed on that work. And they passed on that work so that together with us, they might be made complete. We're doing work that's been passed on to us. We will pass on work that we don't finish to those that come after us. But if each person doesn't do, even if it's a menial task, doesn't do their part or take that one step of faith, if we each won't do that, then it threatens the work of God in our midst. The work of God will still get done, but we're not going for surviving. We're wanting to please the king. We're wanting to do work that pleases the king. We're wanting to show the world his glory and his love. When we do this, the enemies of God will be afraid, but those seeking refuge will see our light shining brightly. So I want to encourage us today. Nehemiah worked with his brothers and sisters tirelessly to finish this wall and to complete the wall. And when he did, the enemy was filled with fear. We're working hard. You guys are working hard. There's been some hits that happened on us this past week. And the enemy's probably not going to stop, but our focus is not going to be on what the enemy is doing. We are aware that he is working against us, but he does not have our focus and attention. Our focus and attention this morning is on the Lord. As we were worshiping, I was thinking, I think we said a line somewhere along the lines of, I just want to see you or I just want you. And I was thinking in light of all that has happened for our heart's desire, not even to be deliver us from the troubles that we're going through, but I just want to see you. I just want to see you. And if that will remain our heart's cry, then the enemy can do whatever he wants to to us, but it's not going to take us off our course. Do you guys agree with that? Let's stand together.